0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, I did it again, where I started researching an episode, thinking I could get a one-part episode out of it, but about an hour and a half into the research, I realized it was going to be likely a two-parter, so with just one episode left until we get to our international episode for number 30, I went another direction and... This may be a longer uh, single episode uh, on a case that I wanted to cover at some point, and it's also a little change from what I've been covering uh, recently. So uh, this is going to be episode 29. It's going to cover the North Hollywood shootout from L.A. in 1997. Uh, But before we get to that, let's get to the business here. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. We're rapidly approaching 2,000 followers, and so if you haven't already followed it, please join in. More information can be found at the website at www.truebluecrimesproductions.com, and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure... That I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The world of electronic banking has changed how we conduct business in many different ways. We can make small or large purchases at registers, self-checkout machines, gas pumps, and even parking meters. Carrying around, keeping, and using large sums of cash is a thing of the past for most people in America in 2023. During the 1800s and until 1933, banks in America issued currency using precious metals in the form of coins as well as banknotes backed by gold. These were easy targets for the likes of the Jesse James gang, John Dillinger, Bush Cassidy, and dozens of other infamous bank robbing outlaws. But in 1933, there was worry that US citizens would destroy the gold standard by buying up all of the available gold, so the US made it illegal for US citizens to own gold and at the same time abandoned the gold standard for currency. All currency would eventually take the form of non-precious metal coins and paper notes that were promised to hold value by the federal government. In the time before electronic banking, large amounts of cash needed to be hauled to and from locations such as banks, especially on certain days of the week when people turned in paychecks for the readily accepted pieces of green paper. The age of cash was born, and for almost 70 years, cash was king and would become the new target for large-scale robberies involving armored cars, banks, and other currency-heavy operations. These enterprising and often brutal and sometimes deadly robberies were high-risk but high-reward endeavors that could land a good crew a lifetime of money in just a few jobs. But for some, the thrill of the hunt and the combination of adrenaline and the challenge to make a bigger haul meant taking huge risks and being prepared for things to go very wrong at any moment. This is exactly what happened on one fateful day in the North Hollywood District of Los Angeles. The day was February 28, 1997. It was a Friday, the most cash-heavy day of the week for banks in America. They would need to have a large reserve of cash on hand to pass out to customers that would come in throughout the day to cash in their paychecks, and being the last day of the month meant it would be even busier as people needed the cash to pay rent for the next month. Two experienced and ruthless men knew this and had selected the Bank of America North Hollywood branch as what they had hoped would be the biggest score of their lives. At 9.16 a.m., just 16 minutes after the bank opened for business that day, the two suspects entered the bank and started one of the most intense and insane police shootouts in history. By the end of the day, two people would be dead, 20 people would be injured, and a combined 2,000 rounds would be fired by the suspects and the police. But before we could get to breaking down the shootout, who are these two men and what compelled them to show down the massive force of LAPD on that day in 1997? Larry Eugene Phillips Jr. was born on September 20, 1970. His father had spent much of the decade prior committing crimes and living on the run from the feds. After robbing a gas station, Larry Sr. had escaped custody and while living on the run, fell in love and had a child with a woman. That child would be Larry Jr., and it is said that Larry Jr. was very intelligent and driven, but was raised with little to no supervision and was psychologically predisposed to lawbreaking, given. His father had no love for law or the government. When he was 14 years old he watched the movie Terminator and saw Arnold Schwarzenegger and decided his life course would revolve around becoming a famous bodybuilder and actor. When he didn't grow tall enough to be the next Arnold, his backup plan became real estate. He was in Los Angeles in the 1980s and there was money everywhere, especially in the booming housing market. Larry settled down to study for his real estate license, and while prepping to make it big, he got caught shoplifting suits from a Sears store. While this would not directly lead to his criminal choices down the road, it was a taste of his willingness to take shortcuts to achieve financial success. Although he had given up his dream of becoming the next Arnold, Larry was still a regular at the gym, and in 1989, he met another enterprising young immigrant, a man named Decibel Stefan Emilian Mastoranu. The two bonded over their love of bodybuilding, firearms, and the idea of making it big someday, even if it wasn't along a legal path. Mazzaranu was four years older than Phillips, born on July 19, 1966. He had immigrated to L.A. with his family from Romania in 1974, during a time in which the country was run by a ruthless dictator. He was bullied as a child due to his weight issues, his accent, and his struggles with English. Despite his struggles, he was was intelligent, and in 1987, he graduated college with a degree in electrical engineering and hoped to make it big in the growing world of computers. Both of their careers would suffer financial collapse with the recession of the early 1990s. A combination of factors led to banks failing and housing prices falling at the same time the two new friends were trying to strike it big. With the LA housing market suffering, Phillips' would make a return to Colorado, a place he had spent part of his youth, and he tried to get rich doing a real estate scam, in which he posed as a prospective buyer, and while being shown 50 properties, he positioned himself to see the agent enter the combination for the key lockbox. This was successful at two of the properties, In the next part of his scam he posed as a real estate agent that was renting the properties, and collected down payments on rent from several people before getting caught and jailed for fraud. His wife bailed him out, but they got into an argument about his crimes and he fled the state, hiding with Mosterano back in LA. The two continued to go to the gym together and soon began planning ways to make a lot of money. They secured some firearms and decided their best way to get rich was to commit robberies. The first suspected robbery the two committed was on July 20th, 1993, back in Colorado. It was just months after unknown suspects took an estimated $7 million in cash, the equivalent of roughly $15 million in cash today, from an armored car depot in Rochester, New York. It's possible this fueled the pair's decision to hold up an armored car crew in the town of Littleton, Colorado. The heist was, was successful, with no one injured and an unknown amount of cash taken. In October of 1993, the pair was pulled over in Glendale, California, while speeding in a rental car. Phillips, still on the run from his scam in Colorado, told the officer he didn't have his license with them. The officer, suspicious of the pair, had them step out of the car and found they were both armed with handguns. A subsequent search of the car revealed the pair was traveling with a ready-to-go bank robbery kit. The trunk contained a semi-auto rifle, two more handguns, 1,650 rifle rounds for the rifle in both 30-round magazines and three round drum magazines, over 1,000 rounds of ammunition for the handguns, two improvised explosive devices, six smoke bombs, body armor for two, portable police scanners with earpieces, masks, wigs, gloves, colored hairspray, three sets of license plates, and just shy of $2,000 in cash. While being charged with a laundry list of felonies, most of the charges were dropped and they were ultimately both sentenced via a plea deal to less than 100 days in jail. They were released after serving their time and got back almost everything from the car except the guns and explosives. On July 14th, 1995, they hit another car, armored car, this time in Los Angeles. They parked behind a four foot brick wall that separated the parking lots of a bank and a gas station and when the armored car arrived at the bank, they waited until one of the crew was prepping a cart to go into the bank and started firing. It is unknown who did the shooting, but the guard was struck several times. Herman Cook, age 51, would later die from the wounds he sustained in this ambush. His partner in the truck, 53-year-old Felipe Cortez, managed to get two shots off at one of the attackers via a gun port from inside the armored truck. One of the rounds struck the attacker in the center of his chest, but it did not stop him, and the attacker opened fire on the trapped guard. The bullets penetrated the armored truck and struck Cortez in the neck, chest, and jaw. He would be out of the fight, but managed to live despite his injuries. The suspect grabbed one cash bag and ran, fleeing in a blue car. The take was $122,500, equivalent to roughly a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. A good payday for the suspects, but at the cost of a man's life. A failed robbery of an armored truck in the San Fernando Valley on March 27, 1996 is also thought to be the work of the pair. Unknown gunmen opened fire on an armored truck, penetrating the windshield but failing to incapacitate the driver. The driver was able to speed off and the suspects fled and then torched their vehicle. It's possible this was the work of the pair, but there was never any direct evidence and the case remains unsolved and was closed in 1998 due to lack of any leads. The suspects, although known to have taken a decent haul in 1995 at the expense of a man's life, had not struck it rich like they had hoped. Armored cars were easier targets and presented the opportunity to strike and run, but in 1996 the pair made the choice to take a bigger risk and go after the big score. They wanted to hit a bank right after an armored car delivered a large sum of cash. At 10 a.m. on Thursday, May 2nd, a Bank of America location in Van Nuys, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles, was subjected to a hostile takeover robbery. The two suspects kicked the main door open and came in with full body armor, covered in clothing head to toe, and armed with assault rifles and handguns. They screamed at everyone to get on the floor and not to move, or they would shoot them. The rifles were overkill for a bank robbery, but served the purpose of shooting their way into the bullet-resistant area that protected the tellers and access to the vault. Once inside the teller area, they demanded the manager give them all the large bags from the recent armored car delivery. These would have been broken down into drawers to make it take longer for the bank robbers to get their hands on them, but the suspects had planned for this and knew they were risking a lot by hitting the vault area for large bills. However, in this case it would pay off as they made it out of the bank that day without running into law enforcement and cleared $755,000, the equivalent of roughly $1.7 million, in today's money. Despite the large haul of money and getting away without any trouble from police, the duo decided to strike again less than a month later. On May 31st, they watched what they thought was a delivery of cash to another Bank of America bank in the San Fernando Valley. After the truck left, they stormed the bank and conducted a similar takeover from their one earlier that month. They were expecting $2 million in cash, but they had made a crucial mistake and not realized the truck leaving was actually doing a pickup of cash, not a drop-off. There was still plenty of cash in the vault, and after filling a large bag with high denomination bills, the suspects once again made a clean getaway and had netted just shy of $800,000 in cash. Not the $2 million they wanted, but together they had stolen almost $3.5 million of cash in today's value in just the month of May of 1996. The LAPD would likely take a heavy response to these two bank robberies with additional patrols, stakeouts, faster response times to hold up alarms, etc., but that would likely have dwindled over the summer months as it would be an unsustainable long term. The suspects, knowing that the heat was on, took the rest of 1996 off and focused on trying to land that $1 million plus job in 1997. So I know I read a lot of that in narrative form because I really wanted to get the story out without disrupting before we get into the actual shootout here. So what we have here is a pair of guys. Again, they've, they've been raised. I, I talked about Larry Sr., uh, Larry Phillips Jr.'s dad. Um, just kind of a, a guy that was involved in some bad stuff and then just never took responsibility for it. It was said that he didn't really spend much time with his son except for when he would take him out in the woods and taught him how to shoot. So I guess the really only connection he had to his father was, was through firearms. And then there was a lot of psychological uh, grooming going on there where his father was anti-police, anti-government, so it was kind of the, the perfect setup for Larry Jr. to turn into this this guy that the rules didn't apply to him and he was going to make his money however he wanted to make his money. Now, Mastrianos, he's father was actually believed to be part of the resistance against the communist direct uh, dictator, which is why they moved to America. So... Despite that being kind of an apples to oranges comparison of the two governments, I have to imagine Mastrianos was also raised to hate and resent government to a certain degree. So neither of these guys are going to have any problems with anything like lawbreaking or remorse or anything like that. It's believed that they were involved in those first two robberies, the one that they got away clean, and then the ambush-style robbery. I say it's believed because I'm not sure that there was ever a direct link between them. But in the ambush robbery of Herman Cook, there were witnesses. Basically, this bank was right next to a gas station, and there was this four-foot wall between the two parking lots and... The suspects parked on the gas station side of this four foot wall and basically just stayed behind their car. And when the armored truck pulled up and the guy gets out, they just opened fire on this guard from behind their car, from behind this four foot wall. But there's still people at the gas station filling up their cars while this is going on. And it said in one of the readings that they were screaming at these guys, like, don't shoot them, they're just security. As if they might have mistaken these guys for like cops or just because it was a blue collar type job and these people filling up their cars felt for these security guards well that caused at least one if not both the suspects to turn their rifles towards the people at the gas station they didn't shoot but they just pointed at them and told them to kind of shut up or whatever and One of the guys wasn't wearing any type of ski mask or face mask, so the witnesses gave a pretty good description that was turned into a composite sketch, and the composite sketch uh, looks a lot like one of the suspects. I can't remember which one, but... So there's enough evidence there to say that they were likely the ones that, that killed Herman Cook and... And stole that $155,000 in cash from that armored car. And I believe that the bank that, that occurred at is the same as their second robbery, the one where they thought they were going to get $2 million. I'm not 100% sure on that, but a couple of the sites I saw looked like the bank was the same bank um, in the photos and, and different uh, uh, information in there. So again, the It wouldn't surprise me that they returned to a bank, and they would do a lot of surveillance, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, where they're watching trucks come and go, uh, armored cars come and go, and they tried to figure out their schedule so they would know when they were dropping off large sums of cash, because that's when they could hit the bank and get the most cash. And the banks were always trying to change stuff up, especially after their first robbery. They think that's where they... The suspects got this wrong was that when they went to hit the bank that the second bank they had assumed a a truck based on previous surveillance was a delivery truck of cash when in turn it was a truck doing a pickup of cash so that's where they think that the bank was obviously not just going to stay status quo and say okay every thursday at four we deliver 1.5 million dollars in cash because they knew they needed to change that up so as much as they could, they, they made it so that there wasn't going to be a large amount of cash on site and, and if possible. So that, I guess the only other thing to talk about is I I didn't understand, I guess to a certain degree, I can, when, when they were caught in that car with all of the, basically the ready to go bank robbing, robbing kit, they had not committed a crime that was known at that time. It's basically, you can have a gun, a knife, rope and duct tape and a tarp in the back of your car and drive around all you want as long as you can legally carry that gun and you can't be put on trial for murder or punished for murder because you haven't committed a murder yet so they what they pled to was some of the The illegal items themselves, the explosives and a couple other things that were in the car that they shouldn't have had. I think maybe one of the rifles was converted to fully automatic. I can't remember for sure, but they didn't have major criminal records. Phillips had that fraud thing he had to deal with out of Colorado, but Mastrianos, I don't think, had anything. So they looked at it as, yeah, these guys probably were on the way to commit a bank robbery that day or very soon around that day, but they hadn't committed it yet, so we can't try them for it. We have no proof that that's what they were going to do. So they got off pretty easy, and then, of course, it wasn't illegal for them to have the ammunition or some of the stuff, so they're able to say, it's not illegal for us to have it. We want it back. So they got a lot of that stuff back, which is something that was going to come back to, to haunt law enforcement in the future. But I think that pretty much covers all the stuff I wanted to break down, talk about. Oh, and the one other thing was there was the second bank robbery. When they came into that place, one of the tellers was able to trip a silent alarm. And that alarm did go through to the police department, but it was said that they were extremely thin on the road that day. And this goes back to why they probably didn't want to risk doing a third bank robbery is because you know when one happens it's kind of a shock but you think it's a one-off when two happen especially within a month that's going to change the way the police react to things but as i said before it's not sustainable police cannot continue to pay overtime for detectives to sit and watch banks to see if somebody's surveilling them they can't pay Overtime shifts to have extra patrol officers on the streets driving around watching these banks At some point that becomes Unsustainable and the fact that they didn't commit a robbery maybe had they tried to do one in, in June of that year Something would have been in place and they might have been caught but There's also a likelihood that while they were doing surveillance on some of these banks They were seeing some of this increased activity and just realized that it was too hot of a time to still steal So just like the banks are going to have different policies and more rigid control measures after these robberies, just like the police department, none of that is sustainable long-term. You can't operate your bank every day as if it's going to be robbed. You can't operate your police department every day as if there's going to be a bank robbery. Eventually, you just can't afford to do that, and you have to go back to status quo and then wait until, unfortunately, you get robbed again. So that's what's going on as we set up towards the actual shootout here. Now as for the shootout, the two had spent several months surveilling their new target. This was another Bank of America bank, this time in North Hollywood at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard. This is an extremely busy area with a large amount of retail and residences surrounding the bank and they're doing these bank robbers i don't know if i shared the timing of the previous ones but like one of them the one where they thought they were going to get the two million dollars that they hit that bank at like 10 a.m and the delivery truck had come at 8 30 which was really the pickup truck um so they must have been watching the bank and and there's something about they were slated to get a, a delivery like at noon or they're supposed to get a delivery at noon that day per the guy's surveillance so then when they're watching the bank and this truck shows up early they must have just assumed it was the truck dropping off cash early so they weren't supposed to hit that bank until after this noon delivery of cash but they jumped the gun to rob it at 10 o'clock thinking that that truck had just dropped off that cash and they wanted to get as much of that cash as possible so these are not bank robberies that are happening, you know, as banks closing when it's potentially dark and there's less people out moving around. These are at the middle of the day on a Friday in a busy area of LA. So it's only a matter of time before somebody is going to see them and see what they're up to. They had spent the months prior monitoring the pickup and drop off schedule of armored trucks. As we talked about, the banks and the armored trucks themselves had likely changed much of their practices after the two robberies in May of 1996, but likely would have relaxed some of their policies and practices with no robberies over the last nine months. The pair were confident they were hitting the bank on the right day and at the right time to take the largest sum of money. They geared up and set out for the bank. They donned their body armor, which Phillips had 40 pounds of armor and gear on him, including a bullet-resistant vest with groin coverage and he had specially made bullet resistant panels for his arms and legs he basically took other bullet resistant chest armor pieces and cut them up and then made kind of makeshift uh arm protectors and leg protectors and then he had a chest panel with magazines for the for the rifles. Uh, Mastriano was only protected on his chest, but this he had included an extra plate on his chest, the front, front part of his chest, to protect his vital organs. And both men had taken several prescription medications prior to conducting the robbery to include barbiturates to settle their anxiety. They parked right in front of the bank in a handicapped spot, and each armed themselves with an AK-47-style assault rifle, several magazines of ammo, and then walked inside the bank at 9.16am. Unbeknownst to the suspects, an LAPD car on routine patrol saw the men walk into the bank and radioed in that he was seeing a robbery in progress at the bank. While the witnessing officers were waiting for backup, the suspects inside the bank were going through their normal routine of forcing a manager to open the vault and fill bags with the large denomination bills. However, the bank had continued to change up its delivery schedule, and the suspects had guessed wrong, and per policy since the two previous robberies, the bank had a much lower cash reserve than before. The suspects were still able to get just over 300000 but it was far lower, far lower than they had expected. The bank had also been putting die packs in the large denomination drawers in the vault, and three of these packs were put into the bag and would later activate, ruining most of the money. Mastriano became very upset about the lack of money. In in fact, so upset that he fired a full 75-round drum magazine worth of rifle rounds into the vault, destroying several stacks of smaller bills of money. This gunfire could be heard outside the bank, and officers relayed that they had shots fired as they took cover behind their squad car. Soon, four more squad cars arrived and took up a 360-degree perimeter around the bank. At 9.24 a.m., eight minutes after being seen entering the bank, Phillips re-emerged and saw the many squad cars now surrounding the bank. He immediately opened fire on the officers and civilians that had gathered along Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Several officers and civilians were injured during this initial round of gunfire. So we'll take a, a quick break here and talk about the bullet penetration. And I'm sure... Again, I mentioned this is a very busy area of Los Angeles, so I'm sure as a whole bunch of squad cars are, are pulling up to this bank and it's not like you see in the movies where they you know come in squeal squealing tires and, and whatnot. They would have likely rolled in very quietly without even sirens on to not alert the guys in the bank that they were there. But just having lights on and that many, many... Squad car sitting outside of a bank, it's going to draw a bit of a crowd. And of course, the crowd is expecting to see some guys come out of the bank and get arrested by the police or something like that. So, something, and and, in today's world, there would be a whole bunch of people with cell phones out trying to record the thing. But back then, they're just going to watch. They have no idea that these guys are going to come out and just decide to get into this shootout. So, they're kind of both officers and civilians are kind of caught off guard. When Philip comes up, Phillips comes out and starts opening fire on them. And the other thing you see in TVs and movies is cars deflecting bullets. And yes, there are bullet-resistant vehicles, armored vehicles. I mean, we talked about the armored trucks, but they were able to injure Philippe Cortez sitting inside of an armored truck because they're using a somewhat of a form of armor-piercing bullets. They're not really armor-pierced, but they're steel core so that they don't break up as much. And they're going to penetrate. And even regular bullets, cars are made to be as light and sturdy as possible for better gas mileage and just cheaper to make and, and everything. So you, the door panels on your car is just a thin piece of metal. And then there's you know obviously some electronics in there and some sound dampening stuff but for the most part it's a couple thin pieces of metal and maybe some fabric and some wires in there that's not stopping a bullet and so people will see in movies a guy you know open up the car door and duck behind it as bullets ding off the outside of the car door it's not realistic a car door even two car doors if you put two car doors between yourself and the and somebody's shooting at you you're still likely going to get shot we used to do this for training for law enforcement as we'd actually get old junker cars and we'd shoot them up either for sometimes for crime scene training so that we could um, do bullet trajectory stuff and other times just for uh, range training and whatnot so that we would have confidence of shooting through windshields shooting into cars whatever whatever may you needed to do to to let you know but basically the only truly safe places behind a car is behind the engine block and you can maybe get one or two people behind that engine block behind the uh, either the front passenger or front driver side tire kind of area because there's enough heavy metals in the engine block and in that just vicinity to, to slow down or stop a bullet but if if you've got five or six seven eight people trying to hide behind a car a lot of them are going to end up just behind those thin flimsy doors and those bullets are just going to tear right through there so within a matter of time they're going to have a lot of of injured uh civilians and they had officers that were hiding behind you know trees trying to use trees as cover and same thing all it was took was one bullet going through the soft outer part of the tree and and then entering into an officer to injure injure the officer so You've got a whole bunch of now civilians and officers in bad positions uh, injured from Phillip's initial round of gunfire, and it's going to get worse because is going to come out, he's going to start shooting as well, and then they're even going to start shooting at the police helicopter that had been called into the area uh, to help provide information for the uh, officers on the ground. And so the police helicopter had to retreat because it started taking uh, shots from, from these suspects. And the biggest thing that the officers had working against them was they're mainly armed with Beretta 9mm handguns. The detectives had thirty eight caliber revolvers. And then there were some 12 gauge pump shotguns. And none of these weapons were designed for high volumes of fire, uh, long distance engagements, or armor penetration. And all of the weapons used by the suspects at this point were capable of all three of those. So the officers, even though there's multiple of them and only two suspects, they're hopelessly outgunned. And to further describe how bad it is, so most of these these engagements are going to be fired from between 60 to 100 meters away. So a little over more than half a football field to a full football field is the distance because, again, unlike in the movies and some, I guess, portray this better than others, but when police officers arrive to an alarm or a robbery in progress, they're not going to park right out in front of the bank, like in the bank parking lot. So they're going to be out on the street or even possibly in a parking lot of a business across the way from the bank because they want to create that distance from the suspects. However, in this case, it's hurting them because their gun's effective range, for most handguns, the effective range for accuracy is roughly 25 meters and with shotguns depending on what the load is in the shotgun slugs are going to go farther but any type of buckshot or anything along those lines you're losing a lot of accuracy because of the spread out past 50 meters and the penetration into body armor for either those any of those weapons outside of a close engagement is almost none so they've got these guys firing these steel cord bullets from fully automatic high- high capacity drum magazine rounds at officers that are hiding behind officers with limited body armor hiding behind cars and like i said they're they're got heavy body armor on with much better weapons so The police are outgunned in every capacity and at this point have several wounded officers. And a lot of people would ask, well, why don't they just make headshots? Well, headshots are difficult to do. And we talked about the the distance that these weapons are accurate to. They're they're two to four times further away than these weapons are designed to be engaged on people. So a headshot's hard enough. From close in let alone far out and then you add the fact that anytime these officers are trying to line up any type of a headshot or just a shot in general they're getting heavy sustained gunfire coming their direction that being said officers were able to land a few shots on the suspects most hit the body armor and were ineffective but one shot hit phillips rifle rendering it inoperable However, he's just going to retreat to the car and grab another rifle. And this is going to go on for roughly 18 minutes, which is an incredibly long time for any type of a firefight. For anybody who's injured and bleeding at this point, they're going to be applying tourniquets, doing as much first aid as they can. But 18 minutes is a long time. But after 18 minutes four swat operators are going to arrive on scene now these guys were out for a training run so they actually arrive in like shorts tennis shoes and they've just thrown their vests over their t-shirts but they are armed with ar-15 rifles and they're able to commandeer an armored truck and they use this truck and their rifles to to kind of make a, a moving bunker that they're able to get to some of these injured officers and civilians while under fire and get these uh officers and civilians out of the line of fire and in the meantime they're actually able to land a few of these shots that incapacitate uh the weapons and then eventually at this time mastriano has been hit in the legs buttocks and left forearm and then a bullet's going to graze his right eye socket which is going to cause him to reconsider what he's doing and make a run for it in the car uh phillips sees this he grabs a replacement rifle for the one that that the officers had made inoperable and he's going to provide cover fire over the top of the car as mastriano drives and then just going real slow through the parking lot however while this happens phillips is hitting in the shoulder and and his rifle again is hit by a shot from law enforcement so he's got to drop that rifle he grabs a third ak that they had and he decides he's going to go on foot at this point while Monsterano drives in a different direction. So they're trying to draw fire away or make the officers fire weaker by separating at this point. So Phillips walks down a side street. He's taking shots at officers, and the officers actually at this point have the entire kind of block around this area blocked off. So he's not going in here. He doesn't know it, but he's not going to be able to get outside of this perimeter they have set up and while he's walking he takes cover by the semi truck his rifle is jammed and due to a gunshot to his wrist he can't clear the jam and this is something we talked about those 75 round drum magazines one thing they're notorious for is jams because it's just the mechanism itself depending on how well the the magazine is maintained it just doesn't take much to get a jam and some of these guns, it depends again how well the gun has been maintained, it doesn't take much to get a jam. So he's going to get a jam, and it really sometimes does take two operable hands to clear a jam from a rifle. So he's going to drop that rifle and draw a Beretta pistol that he had and start shooting at officers with a pistol. At this time he's going to be shot by an officer in the hand which causes him to drop the gun and he must have at this point realized that it was either kill himself or be captured so he goes puts the gun underneath his chin pulls the trigger. At that same exact moment that he commits suicide one of the SWAT officers was able to get a draw on him with his AR-15 and shot him through the body armor which severed his spine so it would later say that the the death was instantaneous from both shots and so had he not shot himself in the head at that second the officer's shot would have killed him uh, as his spinal cord would have been severed and if the officer hadn't landed that shot he would have been dead by the the, the suicide but either way uh this takes phillips out of the fight so now we're, it's just mastriano he's forced to ditch the car because it had two flat tires from all the shots and the windshield was riddled with bullet holes. They had parked it backed in going to the bank because that's the way you make your quickest getaway. You don't have to you know, do any look over your shoulder turn thing. You just put it in drive and off you go. If, if they hadn't been seen, however, because it's parked that way, all these shots while they were getting rifles out of the trunks and all that kind of stuff are hitting the windshield of the car and peppering it with bullet holes. To the point that he can't see out of it. So he's going to ditch the car and he tries to carjack a guy that's driving this jeep. He takes a couple shots at the guy and the guy runs off. But before the guy ran off, and and Master Ana doesn't know this yet, he had hit an electrical kill switch in his car. I mean, this is the 90s in LA, so vehicle theft's a big thing. So this guy had installed some type of a switch where even unless you knew which switch it was, you couldn't get the car started again. But Mastriano is going to take the time to unload his weapons and some ammo from the car into the jeep. And then when he sits into the jeep and tries to start it up he realizes it not going to start. At this same time some of the SWAT officers arrive and they procured a squad car and are trying to run down this Mastriano so he doesn't get out of their perimeter and they get into what's described as a 2.5 minute long gun fight with straight gunfire. So again 2.5 minutes doesn't seem like long but if that's 2.5 minutes of people shooting each other that is a long time and one of the officers kind of lays under the rear bumper of the squad car and Mastriano at this point is kind of he's behind his car in this jeep but his legs are exposed and he's not wearing any body armor on his legs so the officer's able to hit him several times in the the ankles and and legs uh, an unprotected area which is eventually going to drop Mastriano to the ground he's going to give up and request that officers shoot him but at this point he's disarmed and no longer a threat so the officers don't shoot him but during the chaos of the scene and whether this was intentional or unintentional miscommunication there was a delay in getting an ambulance to Mastriano for 70 minutes so an hour and 10 minutes and he's going to die from blood loss during this time So, the aftermath of this incident, the only two deaths that day were the two suspects. They had used six firearms to shoot a combined estimated 1,100 rounds, which equated to a shot every two seconds. Officers fired about half that many rounds at around 650. It was found that the officers hit both suspects several times in center mass, but the bullets failed to penetrate the body armor worn by the suspect. So, when... When officers trained to shoot, especially back in the 90s, it was tra- trained to shoot center mass. It's it's where the vital organs are on the body, and it's the easiest part of the body to hit. Everybody always talks about, why didn't the officer just shoot the gun out of his hand? Or why didn't you just shoot him in the leg? Well, A, those limbs move all over the place, and you have to worry about if you miss, where's that bullet going to go? And... There's not as much meat and bone in the arms as and legs as there is center mass. So if the bullet penetrates, where is it going to go? And finally, we don't shoot to injure people. We shoot because it's a deadly force situation, which means we shoot to end a threat. And center mass, vital organs, is the best way to end that threat. So officers are trained to shoot center mass. Unfortunately, in this situation, center mass was covered by body armor and... It wasn't enough until that officer got the, the AR-15 round that, that penetrated Phillips's body armor. Uh, nothing they had shot to that point had penetrated. And there was a point at which Mastriano was shot twice by the officer with the AR-15. And because of that trauma plate he had in his chest, it probably knocked the wind out of him, but it didn't penetrate. In the end, Mastriano was shot a total of 29 times, and most of those were when he was shot in the, the legs at the end there by SWAT, and Phillips had been shot 10 times by police and once by his own hand. Now, Mastriano's family did try to sue the Los Angeles Police Department for failure to rend aid to him because he laid there bleeding out for that 70 minutes, and the case actually did go to trial, however, the jury, it was a hung jury at the trial, so when there's a hung jury, I know we haven't talked about this yet, but in order for a decision in a, in a case to be considered, it has to be unanimous. And a hung jury occurs when one or more people will not agree to join the rest of the voters. So it could have been a case where one person held out or it could have been a case where it was, you know, 50-50, some people for, some people against. But no matter what, a hung jury results when one person refuses to, or when the decision refuses to be unanimous and the lawsuits eventually later going to be dropped. As a result of the shootout and lack of police firepower, a major shift in law enforcement weapons occurred after the shooting. Police departments scrambled to obtain and train officers on AR-15 style assault rifles that could shoot farther, penetrate deeper, and with more accuracy. And by the early 2000s, most departments had rifles in all their vehicles. There have been several documentaries, movies, etc., made about the shootout, and several TV shows, video games, and other areas of entertainment have replicated the shootout. Now, before I get into the hero of the story, this is just my own personal. I remember going through what we have called in Minnesota law enforcement skills. After you get your your degree in Minnesota, you have to have at least a associate's degree, but oftentimes a bachelor's degree in law enforcement and then you also have to go through a skills program which is all the driving shooting uh, defensive tactics uh, stuff that goes along with the job and and then when you pass you have your degree and you pass skills and then you pass the license exam to become a police officer in minnesota then you can be hired by a department and when we were in skills this was two, spring of 2005 When I was in skills, we were at the range and we were shooting handguns, which is fine. And then we went over to the long gun side of the range and we're shooting clay pigeons. And I just had to ask the instructor, I said, and I'd been in the military, I was still in the military at the time with the National Guard, but so I'd shot uh, M16s, but. I just kind of had to ask them, like, aren't we going to train with AR-15s? And I think their comment was something like, no, most departments still have shotguns, which which my department did for less lethal purposes and some other things. But uh, by the time I got to my department, every squad car had a rifle in it, and there was, wasn't was an issue. But I just, I just couldn't believe that there were some people leaving skills, even as late as 2005, that had possibly never fired a rifle before and – and so said this is only that was only eight years removed from from this uh, incident, so it did take a little while. Um, eventually, now I would assume at skills they're going to be using AR-15s because, as I said, our rifles just became less lethal tools at that point. They fired beanbag rounds uh, instead of actual any type of actual um, lethal round. Again, it, it, this changed law enforcement because up until now there's a big pushed not to have a quote-unquote militarized law enforcement and to keep law enforcement in a good optics for the public and that meant not having military style assault rifles and body armor and armored vehicles and all that kind of stuff and pretty much after this and then after 9-11 too but a lot of it came back to after this event, police departments realized they couldn't just put their officers out there. The suspects were getting too well armed and it wasn't just the officers that were put in danger as a result of this, it was civilians as well. So this was a major change in law enforcement and everybody kind of attributes it back to this, uh, to this incident here. So. So here are the story. Um, it's, he's not so much a hero, but I just wanted to mention one more time the ambush death of 51-year-old Herman Cook. Uh, there's not a whole lot out there about him, mainly because of how long it's been since this in- incident. I think I found one article from that time period, and I couldn't even read it because it was archived, and I had to pay a subscription to, I think, the Los Angeles Times in order, if I wanted to read it. Um, but what I did find from the couple articles that... I was able to kinda see was uh he was described by everyone as being a hardworking guy and was kind of full of life. Like all the bank employees really liked him and it just again he was gunned down without so much as a warning just because he worked with cash and these two animals only cared about getting rich. So a lot of the times if you see this, Herman's cook's name gets lost in the larger story of the bank robbery shootout, but I always want to make sure that those who pay the ultimate sacrifice are remembered. So thank you for listening, stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook, and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, thanks for listening, talk to you later guys, goodbye.